Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. International News Review. Welcome back to the show. Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor at McClarty Associates, joining us here on the International News Review. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, Taylor Swift. All right. The controversy came up when the Thai Prime Minister said, wait a minute, Taylor went to Singapore because Singapore promised to pay her two to three to four million dollars a concert and then locked her out of all of the other Southeast Asian nations mm. for concerts. So that's what that's what happened with this. Is this a big deal, Steve? Is it something that should be talked about? It's a business transaction. Of course, you know, the, the, the people with the money and the forethought, you know, win the game. Look, this is how the market is supposed to work. The market is supposed to work where you go out and engage in a business transaction and you try and do what is best for yourself. And you know what? And if you lose and when you lose out, you have to get better. And Thailand is recognizing it needs to get better when it comes to concerts. So when Singapore has this great advantage of having Taylor Swift here from a cultural perspective, from a commercial perspective, from a economic growth perspective, it helps Singapore. And if it's going to force Thailand to step up its game when it comes to concerts, then it has an added benefit, too. So all of this talk about what Singapore is doing, I think, is good for the market. And we could talk later about there was one commenter who, who said this is it goes against ASEAN unity, which <laughs> I just because you know, ASEAN is so unified. Let's look at Myanmar. Look, without for bringing the mood down, with all that's happening in Myanmar <laughs> exactly, and elsewhere, right? this is what you're talking about. This is what upsets ASEAN it's unity. Just ludicrous. Yeah, exactly. So this is it, it. Look, Singapore. This is an amazing investment. If Singapore is paying three million dollars a concert for her to come here as a subsidy six, almost 20 million which is know? which is what is expected which is which is what is was reported the economic impact in japan of four days worth of concerts was 228 million dollars they're underpaying for what they are going to get by hosting taylor swift here well, as I said in the news earlier, uh, it's been claimed that the six gigs here will boost the Singapore economy by up to $500 million. Now, I'm not saying I'm sceptical, but just for the benefit of our listeners, how do we measure this figure? How do we get to a figure like $500 million? I know it's approximate, but how do we get? Basic. I mean, you can, you can look at what would be the economic activity if there was no concert here for those six days. You can now go back afterwards and you can see what the economic impact is how many people flew here who wouldn't have flown here otherwise how many people stayed in hotels who wouldn't have stayed here otherwise how many people are going to go to restaurants and bars use grab use taxis whatever it is these are really hard numbers that you can get after the fact and you can base this on what has happened when taylor swift has gone to other countries when she's gone to japan when she's been in europe when she's been in the united states she has such a loyal fan base that spends so much money because this is isn't just going to a concert. This is an experience for, for her fans, for the Swifties, that the phrase Swiftonomics is a real economic phrase. Is this going to turn into a sort of arms race uh, among Southeast Asian nations? For example, I was reading the backstory of this, and the concert promoter in Singapore went to Los Angeles last summer mm. when, when Taylor was just starting her U.S. tour before she'd even announced Asia, and they, they got the jump. They brought in, I, I assume, the STB and the Ministry of Culture, Community, and Youth, 
And it was like an all of government conversion on Los Angeles to talk to Taylor Swift's people. Is this going to be now the start of something among Southeast Asian nations? They're going to try to pip each other and, and get the concerts? It's already happening in football, which I'll get to. Uh, let's hope so. I, look, Dede, I had no idea. You cannot buy alcohol at a concert at Raja Mangala Stadium in Bangkok. Now, the prime minister has said we're going to change that law so you can start to have a beer at a concert in Bangkok. One, I found this astounding because you can't walk down Sukhumvit Road anymore in the heart of Bangkok and not see marijuana shops everywhere. Yeah. So you can sell marijuana in the center of the city, but you can't drink a beer at a Taylor Swift concert. That's going to change. So let's hope it starts an arms race and that people can recognize what are the laws that are in place and how are we going to compete on a level playing field or a more level playing field. So, yeah, you're going to see changes in laws. You're going to see changes in subsidies that come in. This is nothing new. Look at how much, you know, Messi was, his his, his club, you know, Miami was going to get paid mm. by playing in Hong Kong. Of course, he didn't play, so they didn't get paid. But this is <laughs> and not people want anything refunds. new. <laughs> nothing new. Of course you expect to see that, that we live now, especially in when we have such an online world now, that real-life experiences become more valuable. Valuable. People are willing to pay more for them. And, yeah, the government should try and do what they can to attract those those uh, those events. Just briefly on that, something I think that should interest all three of us, beyond the economics, I'm fascinated by the communications element of this. Lionel Messi's Hong Kong trip, as you mentioned, was a PR disaster for Hong Kong. This feels like a PR disaster for Thailand. And Singapore... Aside from the economic battle, they also seem to be winning the PR communications battle with their public when it comes to arts, entertainment and sports events. I, I don't think Thailand's looking at this as a PR disaster. I think no, they've Thailand made is, it one, I'm saying. They've no. made it one by complaining publicly. Okay. Well, okay, if I were advising a Thai government official and I had a bunch of constituents who were upset that Taylor Swift wasn't coming, I would say, go out there and talk about it. Right? Go out there and fight for your constituents and say, look, we don't think it's quote-unquote fair that Taylor Swift is not coming here, but that that said, we are going to do something about it. We are going to change the rules so we can have visa-free travel. We're going to change the rules on drinking alcoholic concerts. We're going to adjust operating hours of entertainment venues. So we're recognizing that she didn't come here for a reason, and we're going to have to up our game. And so, no, I think this is actually really the, the Thailand's handling this the right way, other than this one person who said that if the issue of ASEAN unity was raised, and that Singapore's actions are detrimental to the unity of the regional bloc. That's ridiculous. I'd love to have been in that room. I, you know, God, I hope like, that. I could, hope you that, can hear the laughing all the way yeah. to wherever. Uh, you know, come on. I hope that wasn't said. Yeah. Uh, let, let's get ASEAN unity on Myanmar. Let's get ASEAN yeah. unity on the South China Sea. Let's get right on ASEAN unity on trade. That's where we need ASEAN unity. And look, maybe though. Taylor Swift is going to bring ASEAN together, unlike anybody has ever been able to do before. If she could bring back Biden, she can do anything. Who knows? All right, we got to move on. We got lots more to talk about. And the next thing we are going to talk about is this new Bloomberg a study that came out talking about the international business community moving to Singapore, uh, some 4,200 uh, 4, international firms in uh, 2023 had 
their headquarters here in Singapore that is leading the 1,336 found in Hong Kong. Even some mainland Chinese companies are choosing to base in Singapore versus Hong Kong. Is this a death knell, you know, kind of a, a ringing the bell for Hong Kong to wake up or a trend line that is going to be uh, hard for Hong Kong to, ch- to Well, Lionel Messi won't be going back yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> any, any time soon. Yeah. Hey, like Stephen Roach, who is the former chairman of Hong Kong, yeah. uh, former chairman of Morgan Stanley in Asia, fre- said Hong Kong is now over. Yeah. It's not he, a competition. It's he over. He said that in the FT a couple weeks ago. It was Th- a great article. Week, this week. And he yeah. said they did, they, it's three reasons why Hong Kong is over. The first is local politics. Right? And the, the second is China's economic structural problems. And the third are global developments, um, the U.S.-China rivalry and trade wars and, and geopolitical battles. You, com- you put all three of those things together, and that means that Hong Kong is no longer the regional hub that it was. And Singapore has become the regional hub. Not becoming, it's become the regional hub. 4,200 regional Hong Kong, a regional headquarters here, compared to the 1,300 in Hong Kong. And that number is only growing. That's the push factors. What about the pull factors? I mean, what is Singapore doing so right, in simple terms, that Hong Kong is doing so wrong? Two words. Taylor Swift. Why is she here for six nights and not in Hong Kong at all? Singapore has had, it used to be that Singapore was a great place to do business. I'm going back like 20 years, Mm. right? Singapore is a great place to do business, not necessarily seen as a cultural hub, as a global hub, as a place to have concerts, as a place to have sporting events, as a place to have global conferences. It is now because Singapore for a couple of decades, has had a plan to do this the right way. and, and Infrastructure they everything, and everything, right? Everything. Yeah. They, hey, look, when, when I got here, when you all got here, you know, the National Stadium was decrepit. The old Kalong Roar was <laughs> you know, on its way out. I mean, the, the yeah. seats were crumbling. I mean, this is where you'd sit in concrete and you couldn't sit down for much more than an hour without having pain. Now, and you have now, to be very careful because that was a beloved icon yeah, for you, many you, 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 No, it, it, <laughs> yeah. operative but word is was in the past tense. And yeah. what did Singapore do? Singapore said, we need to have one of the best stadiums in the 21st century. Yeah. And they built it and, and they tore the old one down. And covered as well, right, oh, to mm-hmm. make cool. it a, a year-round season round. Yeah, and yeah. with seats. Yeah. With actually, that had seats. <laughs> uh, and so, no, so Singapore is doing everything that it can to become a global, not a regional hub, really a global hub. And Hong Kong has not and is not, and Hong Kong has become a place that you want to hub for China for sure, and Hong Kong is always going to remain important in that regard, but it is now over in terms of the competition as to what is going to be the Asia regional hub. Mm. Broadly speaking, will China particularly care? I mean, since the Hong Kong protests, it does seem they're, they're willing to write Hong Kong off. They, okay. Do they care? I mean, I mean, it's an interesting question is what is the most important thing to China? What's the most important thing, right, to the to the to the leaders of China, to the Communist Party of China? It's that China 
be, maintains being China, ma- maintains being led by the party, that it goes down the path that it is choosing. It is not it, – it, China's goal, I don't think I – mean, I'm talking about the leadership of the party. I don't think that they're saying we need to take every step we can to have Hong Kong remain a global city. Exactly. They're not. And so I don't think – so do they care? I don't think they care in the bigger picture of what's more important to China. The um, this this past week on Thursday went to a fascinating uh, American Chamber of Commerce program with the author Chun Han Wang. The, he's the author of Party of One: The Rise of Xi Jinping and China's Superpower Future. He is a um, a Wall Street Journal reporter, and we're going to have him on the show in a few weeks' time. Uh, he has got some fascinating insights into exactly that question. I won't give away that that uh, spoiler alert there, but um, what whether they're just yeah. willing to. Yep. Right off Hong Kong at this yep. point. Yep. Again, it's, it's, and that, it's, it's, it's the we question, what's that. important to the party? And Hong Kong as a global city is not one of the goals of the party. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the India climate crisis and ESG. You've just spent the week in India touring around several different uh, locations. Take us up to date on what's happening with the climate crisis in India. Well, I'm going to do a quote from Joe Biden because this this quote kind of surprised me, and he did it this week. Um, And he did this at a private fundraiser, but it it was reported. He said, when they asked him, what is it you worry about? We have a crazy SOB like that guy Putin and others, and we always have to worry about nuclear conflict. But the existential threat to humanity is climate. That I mean, that's kind of astounding to come from the president of the United States in this era of the poly crisis with all that he has to do, that it is the climate that is the existential threat. And I was in India this week. I have a, you know, my firm, APAC Advisors. I have a, a private equity firm that I work with, Creador. Um, they have a lot of portfolio companies across South Asia, Southeast Asia. We go about every three or four months to visit them, to talk about ESG to find out what's going on. And in India, the climate crisis is hitting harder than probably anywhere in the world right now. I think other countries will Mm. catch up. You know why? Uh, It's the extreme heat and humidity. 2023 was the hottest year for India since 1901. I got to think it's probably the hottest year ever. It is affecting business today. Labor hours are going, and, and, and because of how the heat is affecting labor hours, India's GDP is 4.5% at risk by 2030, not 2050, by 2030. Up to 75% of the workforce in India is, or 380 million people are dependent on heat exposed labor. And they're, got the potential to be working in life-threatening temperatures. India has to do something about this. And what's, what's been great to see is what the companies that, that I visited across, across the country are doing when it comes to having to change work hours, when it comes to having to give more water breaks, mm-hmm. when, it, when it comes to putting in solar panels. Um, because the way I put it to them, it, we used to think about climate is what is it that we as companies are doing to the climate and how can we reduce our impact on the climate? How can we reduce our emissions? Can we go from, you know, coal-fired power to solar? Now we have to think about not what we do to the, cl- what we do to the planet, 
What's the planet doing to us? And the planet is coming after us. I mean, that's fascinating at a C-suite level. But just a couple of stats that I'm sure you know. I saw this week record-breaking heat waves in northwest India and Pakistan have been a hundred, more hundred times more likely for climate change. But the one that got me, Steve. This hot, scorching weather was once expected every three centuries is now expected to happen every three years. What are they doing yeah. about it? How has it seeped? Has it seeped below the C-suite level? Is it a part of daily life? Has this con- crisis seeped into public consciousness in it, India? It is. And, but the question is, what do you do about it? And I mean, how, that's the struggle that companies are going through. And, and so they're now, you know, now walking through. We're going to have to give more breaks. Maybe we're going to have to shut down the factories and the warehouses and delivery at the height of the day. So you may have to start working earlier. Your shifts may go later to try and avoid the heat because you can't work in the temperatures that we're seeing now. All right. Look, we got to move on to our final story of the morning here. Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, we all know Jack, uh, an Asian success story, had a little bit of trouble with the uh, Chinese government a couple of years ago, but we won't get into that right now. This is a, this story is about his wife, uh, who has purchased apparently three adjoining shop houses in Duxton Road. The Business Time says that uh, her name is uh, Jiang Ying, a Singapore citizen, by the way. And paid forty-five million dollars, forty-five to fifty million Sing dollars for seventy, seventy-one, and seventy-two Duxton Road. Wow! I bought seventy-three, seventy-four, seventy-five. <laughs> I bought sixty-five <laughs> through sixty-nine. There you so go. We're neighbors. We're all neighbors. We're all neighbors. Yeah, yeah a, a perfect illustration of of that competition between what's happening <laughs> in Singapore. I mean, you but know, are we she, pricing ourselves out of look, you know, out of everything, Steve? Here wait, in real estate, especially. She and her husband, you know, Jack Ma, Chinese. They they then bought places in Hong Kong. She became a Singapore citizen. Looking at the internet, sometime around 2018, 2019 or so. And so what do you do as a Singapore citizen? Well, you know, she's only worth $1.5 billion in her own right. right? <laughs> Jack Ma's the 50th wealthiest person in the world. He's probably $30 billion or so. She's only $1.5 billion. So what do you do with $1.5 billion when you already have a house you bought in Victoria Park for $40 million, right? And let's go and buy three shop houses that were combined. So she's not combining them. These three shop houses had been combined by the previous owner who paid $22 million for them in 2018. Wow, what a great investment, huh? Doubled. Nice. Six years, you double, more we're than double your investment. The bank. Yeah. And but I, she's not going to live in them. She's converting them into a restaurant, I believe. Unclear what oh, okay. she's going to do with them. She can go you know, either way. But look, this is only a 10-minute walk to, you know, the former AXA, AXA Tower in Shenton Road, which is re- being redeveloped by Alibaba, that is going to be the tallest building in Singapore in 2018. So maybe she just wants to walk to visit Alibaba, and that's why she's buying these, these real houses. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. But, I mean, slightly more serious existential question to Glenn's point. How does this really affect average Singaporeans? Are we pricing our own property market out of the hands of Singaporeans. Are you saying that Sing dollars forty nine hundred and fifteen per square foot is too much? 
A little bit, yeah, I am. Funny enough, I am. Yeah. Are we being overtaken by crazy rich Asians, basically? It, it, this is certainly, a, it's not just a challenge for Singapore, but it is, it is a challenge for Singapore for sure. You know, the income inequality, if you have you know, too much of a gap between the haves and the middle class and the wannabes who want to get into the middle class and they don't feel they can ever get there because they're being priced out, that will cause societal problems. And so... Singapore, I think, recognizes that. But when you live in a free market, it becomes more difficult to address it, especially when you have the mm. wealth that's coming and you're going to see more wealth coming from all the people who've invested in AI. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, the uh, a, a 10,000 square foot triple shop house is out of the reach for most people. Well, these are the, the kind of, of neighbours that Glenn and I associate with. We'll have them over, Glenn, won't we? Well, for a dirty chai latte. About 15 years ago, I rented a, a, a shop house just around the corner on Craig Road for an office uh, for a production company we were working on. And those days, it was just kind of a funky, quiet little neighbourhood, a lot of hostess bars and, you know, small restaurants and shops and things. And and now it's it's it was very popular. I mean, lots of people would go there in the evening time, all the, the office workers from International Plaza and all of those uh, places down in, in Tanjong Pagar. But now it's just, uh, you know, I fear just being priced through the roof. For, for those listeners not from Singapore, Glenn, can you please explain what a hostess bar is? Nope. Got to go, Steve. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. We, we got bills to pay here. We will see you next week. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.